Oh, Heavenly Father, we stand before you and we wait upon you and we approach your word as a needy people, blind and deaf and needing you through the ministry of your Holy Spirit, the renewed life in Christ through our great salvation, through your mercy and grace to open our eyes and our ears that we might see Jesus. Father, thank you for our Bibles. Thank you for these great stories that bring instruction and conviction and exhortation. Father, will you use your word now as that scalpel that we need to cut out all that is wrong. Use your word as that source of renewal and rebuilding to make us into what you want us to be, conforming us into the image of our precious Lord Jesus. It's in his name that we pray now. Amen. Well, I wonder if uh, you've ever heard the story that John Maxwell uses in a little book that he wrote early on in his writing ministry entitled, Be All That You Can Be. He tells the story about a man who was honored as his city's leading citizen. At an event to honor this gentleman, he was called on to tell the story of his life. And he said from the podium, Well, friends and neighbors, when I first came here 30 years ago, I walked into your town on a muddy dirt road with only the suit on my back, the shoes on my feet, and all of my earthly possessions wrapped up in a red bandana tied to a stick, which I carried over my shoulder. Today, I'm the chairman of the board of the bank. I own hotels, apartment buildings, office buildings, three companies with branches in 49 cities, and I'm on the boards of all the leading clubs. Yes, friends, your city has been very good to me. It was after the banquet and people were standing around that a young man approached this great man and asked him, Sir, Could you tell me what you wrapped in that red bandana when you walked into this town 30 years ago? The man looked at him and he said, Son, I think it was about a half million dollars in cash and $900,000 in government bonds. Well, this morning, I want you to think a minute. What's in your red bandana? Aren't we living in a time when people are feeling like their resources are depleting? What is it that you are looking to for your security? What are you building your life upon? What is your formula of success? A lot of people are wheeling and dealing. Our job today is to understand what it means to receive the blessing of God upon your life. It's one thing to come into town with half a million cash in your red bandana and take it from there. It's another thing to have nothing, to recognize your nothingness, and then to see God build your life according to his will and to bless you. And I'm not talking specifically, necessarily, about material blessing. I invite you to turn to our study this morning in Genesis chapter 30. We are studying the life of a man who came into town with a red bandana on a stick, but in his red bandana was nothing. Do you remember that? He had nothing. He left home and he 
came to a new community there to find a wife, and as you know, he found four wives. We've been talking about Jacob, the son of Isaac, the grandson of Abraham. It was on his journey into this town that Jacob encountered the Lord, you recall? It was there that in that great vision at night, with that ladder suspended from heaven, that God specifically oriented his promise from his grandfather Abraham through his father Isaac directly to Jacob and said, Jacob, I will bless your life. It must have been an interesting concept in Jacob's mind because he literally had nothing in his red bandana and his, had slept that night on a rock. He took that rock, do you recall, and built an altar, anointed it with oil and worshipped the Lord. He had some ups and downs, but we're seeing Jacob begin to orient towards the Lord. We have to see between the lines, if not directly in Genesis chapter 30 and then into chapter 31, which we will read this morning into 31, you need to see in Jacob's heart and mind that he is beginning to understand that he is the recipient of the promise of blessing from God and he's waiting on God for that promise. Let's read our text this morning, and as we read, we're going to break down the story because it's kind of long, and I, want, I don't want to take time to go back and forth. So as we read, I will make some comments so that we can understand this story with one reading. I've read it probably 30 times this week, not that many times, a dozen times this week. And uh, it's interesting. You kind of get nuance out of it every time you read it. Let me break it down for you and let's begin with Genesis chapter 30 and verse 25. And uh, let's see what's happening with Jacob. You'll recall that we left him last week with his lonely, loveless wife, Leah, longing for the love of her husband. And then giving their maidservants to him was his wife, Leah, and his wife, Rachel, At the end of the passage last week, Rachel finally, not because of the mandrakes, the love apples, the superstitious uh, fruit that she bartered for, for her husband's love, um, but because of God's grace and in answer to her prayer, she then conceives and has a son. His name is Joseph. In just a few more chapters, we will enter our study on the life of Joseph that I think you will find very challenging And there's extensive detail given to Joseph's life. It says in verse 24, Rachel named him Joseph and said, May the Lord add to me another son. Verse 25 now. After Rachel gave birth to Joseph, so we have a time frame given to us here. Jacob has been with his father-in-law Laban for approximately 14 years, give or take some time. The first seven years to to use a labor for his father-in-law as a dowry for his wife Leah, which he was schnookered into, as you recall, and then an agreement where he could take Rachel, the woman he loved, as his second wife. He didn't really plan for it to be that way, but it happened. And then his agreement with his shyster father-in-law Laban was to work seven more years. Those 14 years are up, and there's 12 children later between four wives, and here he is, and marking this end of this time, and we see, number one, Jacob's frustration in our passage. Jacob is frustrated. He's ready to go. He's worked long enough. He says to Laban, his father-in-law, send me on my way so I can go back to my own homeland. 
Give me my wives and children for whom I have served you, and I will be on my way. You know how much work I've done for you. Laban's not too pleased to lose his son-in-law, who has been very productive for him. And it's interesting, there's an interesting comment, number two, about Laban's divination in this passage. Look at verse 27. But Laban said to him, I have found... If I have found favor in your eyes, please stay. So Jacob wants to leave. Father-in-law wants him to stay. Laban always has ulterior motive, almost always driven by money and materialism. And he says, please stay. I have learned by divination that the Lord has blessed me because of you. Laban was not a follower of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, evidently. And he delved into the spirit world at some level Bible scholars don't know exactly the the implication of the Hebrew word that's translated divination, but somehow he sought from the stars or from a, a palm reader or some diviner outside of God, and he received the, the right answer. Where's your blessing coming from? I've discerned through divination that my blessing comes from Jacob. Jacob's standing there, and he's flabbergasted as the man who's been busting himself for 14 years. And in his mind, it's like you had to go to a diviner, a divin- you had to seek divination to figure out where your prosperity is coming from. And notice what he says in response to Laban's div- divination. The Lord has blessed me because of you, Laban says, verse 28. He added, name your wages and I'll pay them. Jacob said to him, you know how I have worked for you and how your livestock has fared under my care. The little you had before I came has increased greatly and the Lord has blessed you wherever I've been. It's like, what's wrong with you, buddy? The little bit you had, now 14 years later, look at what you have and you can only conclude it's because I'm here. A little bit of a cocky attitude maybe, but I think that he's just stating the obvious. But now, when may I do something for my own household? We now see the motivation in Jacob's thinking. Jacob's motivation, number three, that he might have a place of his own. We'll recall that he's not a young buck. He's not just a newly, he is a newly married man, but he's not just a young guy because he was a bachelor, probably into his 70s. If 14 more years has gone by, he's pushing 90. He's still working for his father-in-law, living in a rented tent, and he wants more for himself. God is beginning to stir inside of Jacob and he's telling him, you need to go back And Jacob is stirring within himself. He wants to go home. He wants to see his mother and his father. He wants to see what's happening. He recognizes that he's been blessed by God, that Laban has been blessed by Jacob through God's blessing on Jacob. Reminds you a little bit when you read about Jacob in this passage, what we will see in the life of Joseph coming up in Potiphar's house. Do you remember that? That everything Joseph's hand touched was blessed of the Lord. We'll reference that concept in a minute. Jacob's motivation then is to gain for himself. Evidently, when you read the passage, you recognize that Jacob has thought this thing through ahead of time and he recognizes that it is very unlikely that that father-in-law Laban is going to say, sure, take my daughters, my grandkids and go. That he understands that his wealth and his security, Laban's that is, is very much based upon Jacob's productivity. Jacob knows this. Jacob's thought it through because look at the detailed response he gives to Laban's no, stay with me, just name your wages. 
I think he's looking for his son-in-law to say kind of an, aw, shucks, it's okay, pops, I'll just stay here and work for you. You've been good to me. And there's a little bit of uh, strategy going on here between two schemers. I tend to fall on the side, though, that Jacob, overall in this passage, is a righteous man. And that he's not manipulating and massaging Laban's material goods from him in an unjust manner. He's simply being productive. Laban, though, is definitely trying to scalp Jacob out of more work and more productivity. He said, but now when may I do something, Jacob says, end of verse 30, for my own household? Well, what shall I give you, he asked. Don't give me anything, Jacob replied. See, he's got this thought through. But if you will do this one thing for me, I will go on tending your flocks and watching over them. Now, we are now going to read an extended passage that is as odd as any passage in the Bible. And if you're not interested in agricultural, agricultural matters and animal husbandry, this is just really flaky. If you're interested in, in farming and developing a herd of goats or cattle, this is kind of interesting to you. Now let's read what Jacob has all thought out and proposes. And this is part of his motivation to gain personal wealth to develop something for his own household. The end of verse 30, that's his motivation, that I may do something for my own household. Jacob says in verse 32, here's what you do. Don't pay me. Let me go through all your flocks today and remove from them every speckled or spotted sheep, every dark-colored lamb, and every spotted or speckled goat. They will be my wages. Okay. And Laban's a farmer. His wealth is measured in his livestock, and the prime livestock are white sheep, not dark sheep, and solid colored goats and animals, not speckled and striped ones. They weren't as desirable, okay, whatever strain it was. And so whenever they had an animal with a recessive gene that popped up and, and it came out speckled, that wasn't, that wasn't a good thing. They get a new lamb, they get a new goat, a kid goat, it's like, oh, one of those worthless ones. Get, bring a little less on the market that way. So Jacob says, take all the spotted and speckled ones and I'll keep them. You keep all the solid ones. Obviously, Laban had been trying to develop his solid colored animals. Jacob says to him, which appeals to Laban, kind of a foolproof manner, verse 33, and my honesty will testify for me in the future. Whenever you check on the wages you have paid me through these animals, any goat in my possession that is not speckled or spotted or any lamb that is not dark colored will be considered stolen. Okay, so if I get any nice white little sheep and I have solid colored goats then you know that I ripped you off. I went and got some animals that are supposed to be yours. I'm keeping only the spotted ones. Agreed, said Laban. Didn't take him long to think about that. Verse 34, let it be as you have said. That same day, he removed all the male goats that were streaked or spotted and all the speckled or spotted female goats, all of that had white on them and all the dark colored lambs and he placed them in the care of his sons and then he put a three days journey between himself and Jacob while Jacob continued to tend the rest of Laban's flock. Fourth thing we see here is Laban's manipulation. He made a deal with Jacob. He says, that's the greatest deal I ever heard of. I don't even like those spotted sheep anyway. And then immediately he sends his boys out there. It's the first reference we have to Laban's sons. 
He had de- evidently, de- they were younger probably, and he was de- much more dependent on his older son-in-law, Jacob. And he sends his boys out there immediately, says, you call the herd right away, get every spotted animal out of there and get it out of here. Well, those were supposed to be Jacob's. So he, he's doing a couple things. Number one is he's increasing his own herd side. He's taking them out of there, but he's also minimizing the, the sireability of the spotted rams. And the ones that are spotted are going to pass on that recessive gene to the next to their offspring. And he's trying to clear out all the spotted ones so that solid animals will birth solid colored animals. All right. It's great stuff on a Sunday morning, isn't it? Let's keep reading. It's interesting. So that's Laban's manipulation. Jacob, however, oh, it gets even weirder. Look at this. Verse 37. Jacob, however, took fresh cut branches from a poplar almond and plane trees and made white strips on them by peeling the bark and exposing the white inner wood of the branches. Then he placed the peeled branches in all the watering troughs so that they would be directly in front of the flocks when they came to drink. When the flocks were in heat and came to drink, they mated in front of these white striped branches. And they bore young that were streaked or speckled or spotted. Jacob, verse 40, set apart the young of the flock by themselves, but made the rest face the streaked and dark-colored animals that belonged to Laban. Thus, he made separate flocks for himself and did not put them with Laban's animals. Whenever the stronger females were in heat, Jacob would place the branches in the troughs in front of the animals so that they would mate near the branches. But if the animals were weak, he would not place them there. So the weak animals went to Laban and the strong ones to Jacob. I call this part Jacob's experimentation. Now, you have to remind yourself when you have a passage like this and you're the preacher that all of God's word is inspired and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction and instruction in righteousness. What an amazing story. And maybe about 15% of you are really interested in animal husbandry and you're like, what the world's going on here? And what is Jacob doing? Now, let me just take a second right now and let's just talk about these these branches that he peels the bark. And you can kind of picture that. You ever do that? Or you see a young man with his new pocket knife and he gets a piece of stick and he slices the bark and he peels part of it back and makes nice neat cuts and the wood is real white underneath before it seasons. That's what he does. And so he takes these strips of almond and poplar uh, wood and he strips the bark and makes it striped and he puts it there in the corral area where they're bringing the the animals in to feed them and water them. And sometimes he puts it in the watering trough and sometimes he just sets it about. And the idea here is, in Jacob's mind evidently, is that with visual stimulation, there is prenatal results as to the offspring color. Now, what's that all about? (laughs) Nobody knows. And I doubt it's worth our time camping on it very long for our message this morning. But let me just rattle off uh, three or four things that could be the answer here, because I have no idea what is reality, what really was going on in Jacob's mind. There is no, today, any scientific evidence, at least I couldn't find any, that says that visually uh, you can influence the color of an animal 
prenatally like that, before they even conceive, that what they're looking at when they're in heat and when they conceive will affect the color of the offspring. So, first of all, it could have been, could have been a super, it could have been superstition. It could have been just like Jacob was thinking for good luck. Let me just kind of create a visual thing here because I really, 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 really want spotted animals to be born. And so it helps me to, like, paint the barn polka dot, you know? Just for good luck, we're going to just put polka dots all over and stripes all over, and then maybe the animals will get a clue. It could be that it was part of an old wives' tale. When you're out in the country and working around animals, there's all kinds of things that are passed on from, from the old folks that they used to believe and sometimes believe, and some of it's got some substance and some of it doesn't. So it could be it was like an old wives' tale. That's a possibility, number one, that it was superstition. Second, it it could be uh, somewhat related to like the old wives' tale. It could be, secondly, that this was an actually accepted practice of the farmers there, of of the sheep herders and goat herders. It could be that they figured this out and they thought that it really worked and they really believed it. And we would say after... Um, biological, physiological, scientific analysis that it was bunk. It was, it, it's debunked. It's not any good. But it could be that the farmers really believed this and that he was just doing what he thought is what you did to get striped and polka dot animals. Thirdly, there's some speculation that there was some chemical response in the water that acted like... Um, a stimulant to bring the animals into heat, that when they drank that, that they brought it on. There's not really any evidence of that. I don't know how you can control that. I worked on a dairy farm for four years, was very involved in a very controlled breeding environment of high-end dairy cattle, and we watched our animals very closely, and um, boy, they're on a pretty rigid calendar cycle. Just, you know, you can't manipulate that. But there's some speculation that there was perhaps a chemical response that was going on. I have no idea. Let me tell you what Pastor Van thinks is happening here. Okay? I think that Jacob got this idea from the Lord. Can we skip ahead in our passage and read what he tells Leah and Rachel when he's... This is some years later. We're going to bump into chapter 31 and we're going to be six years about forward because for about six years now is a window of time when he's doing this animal husbandry and he's growing a herd of his own. Let's go right to chapter 31 and jump ahead in our story. And I think that chronologically what Jacob is going to tell his two wives when he calls them out in the field to talk to them is telling them something that happened six years before. I can't prove this, but this makes the most sense to me. Okay, so we're jumping into chapter 31, right with verse 1. Jacob heard that Laban's sons were saying, Jacob has taken everything our father owned and has gained all his wealth from what belonged to our father. But you remember they had a deal. Okay, so the end is, the end of our story in chapter 30 is that Jacob, it works. And Jacob's flocks and herds are just massive so that he can invest in other enterprises. And he becomes very, very wealthy in this six-year window. And Jacob, verse 2, noticed that Laban's attitude toward him was not what it had been. Then the Lord said to Jacob, Go back to the land of your fathers and to your relatives, and I will be with you. Do you recall that in chapter 30, verse 25, Jacob had in his own heart to go? But evidently, God hadn't told him to go yet. Now, six years later, God is saying to him, go. You see, God was going to enrich 
Jacob through his shyster father-in-law, Laban. Almost in a parallel way. When you go back to the promised land, you're going to be wealthy. Just like later, 500 years later, the Israelites, when they leave Egypt to go back to the promised land, will come back laden down with the wealth of the Egyptians. God had a plan. Jacob wanted to go back home to his mother and father. God didn't want him to. He had six more years in mind. And then this wheeling dealing took place. He becomes wealthy. Now God says, go back. Then the Lord said to Jacob, verse 3 again, Go back to the land of your fathers and to your relatives, and I will be with you. So Jacob sent word to Rachel and Leah to come out to the fields where his flocks were. All right, you got the picture? Jacob is working hard. He's a very hardworking man. Everything about Jacob that we know overall in his adult life is that he was a very hard worker and very productive. He's out in the fields working with his animals, and the Lord speaks to him. And the Lord says, Jacob, it's time to go back. So he sends a messenger while he's out in the field to his two primary wives, Leah and Rachel, and says, come, we need to talk. Okay, he's got to find out how they feel about leaving their father now. And so Jacob sent word, verse 4, to Rachel and Leah to come out to the fields where his flocks were. He said to them, I see that your father's attitude towards me is not what it was before, but the God of my father has been with me. Okay, I want you to observe very closely now what Jacob says about God and what he understands God has been doing in his life because I think this is his attitude all through chapter 30 and all of this animal husbandry stuff. Look what it says. But the God of my father, the end of verse 5, has been with me. You know that I've worked for your father, look, with all of my strength. Yet your father has cheated me by changing my wages ten times. Had to irritate him because he counted them. Ten times your father has manipulated my wages and cheated me. However, God has not allowed him to harm me. If he said, the speckled ones will be your wages, then all the flocks gave birth to speckled young. And if he said, the streaked ones will be your wages, then all the flocks bore streaked young. So God has taken away your father's livestock and has given them to me. Who did Jacob attribute the spotted and streaked animals to? God made it happen, didn't he? He's not taking credit for it. He's not saying, I figured out how to manipulate the gestation and the the DNA in these animals so that when they bred, they had... He didn't do any of that. He's as humble as can be there, isn't he? Look, you girls, God has blessed me. Your father's a lousy cheat, and it's time for us to leave. And God has done this. And so evidently, in those ten times of wages, as Jacob's herd flock of speckled and striped animals grew, Laban changed the rules sometimes. And God would just shift it and whatever whatever was Jacob's reward is the kind of animals that Jacob was having birth. You did see the proper genetics we already read when we read through a little bit where he, um, or else it's coming up the stronger animals are the ones that he kept and he put the weaker ones over in Laban but it was all part of the deal. He was able to control that. He wasn't schnookering him. He was just being smart. And so, look what else it says. So God, verse 9, has taken away your father's livestock and has given them to me. In breeding season, I once had a dream. Okay, when did this happen? He's getting ready to leave. I think this happened before this whole deal started. It's why Jacob even brought it up in the first place to Laban. 
It was his idea, remember? Where did that idea come from? He said, in breeding season, I once had a dream in which I looked up and saw that the male goats mating with the flock were streaked, speckled, or spotted. The angel of God said to me in the dream, Jacob, I answered, here I am. And he said, look up and see all the male goats mating with the flock are streaked, speckled, or spotted. For I have seen all that Laban has been doing to you. I am the God of Bethel where you anointed a pillar and where you made a vow to me. Now leave this land at once and go back to your native land. I don't know the exact timing here, but I kind of take it that God put this idea in him. And I don't think that Jacob was being superstitious. I don't think he thought it was a chemical change in the water. He had this dream. He took this dream from the Lord and somehow... Doesn't say anything about striped sticks in there, but I I wonder if God didn't just tell him to do it. God asks his servants to do weird things. Do you know that? And every once in a while, God will say, I want you to do this. So we don't know why Jacob did these striped sticks and speckled. But we do know at the end of the story that when he is very wealthy and he has vast herds and flocks, built on the backs of these speckled, striped, and spotted rams and, and uh, sheep and goats and so forth, that he turns and says, this all came right from God. He didn't have anything to do with it. I don't think he took the credit. So I don't really know what he was doing. The Bible doesn't say what he was thinking, but there's a few thoughts on it, all right? It might have been superstitious. It might have been an accepted agricultural practice of the day. It could have been a chemical response, or it could be that God just told him to do it that way. Or he just did it that way, believing God wanted him to do it that way. I don't know. All right? Let's go back to our story. That's Jacob's experimentation. Jacob's accumulation. We're heading that direction. We've already read, uh, didn't we, down through verse 40 there. Jacob set apart these young. Then verse 41, whenever the stronger animals were in heat, Jacob would place the branches in the trough. And now we've got real genetics at work here. Everybody knows that. The better animals are going to have better uh, offspring. And so when they come out speckled and they're stronger animals, he gets to keep them. They came out solid and they were weaker animals. He keeps separating them. He keeps separating them. It's controlled breeding and he's developing his stock while Laban's stock is going downhill on the slide. And we used to do this all the time on the dairy farm. We used to get a catalog and look through it and pick our bulls out and pay money for these bulls. Oh, look at that guy. He's big. He's strong. We got this nice cow. Let's put them together. Then we take care of that calf and we watch that calf and we get a better bull and put it to that calf. And next thing you know, we got cows that are given hundreds of gallons of milk a day. Just not really, but <laughs> you couldn't put it all in a five gallon pail in the morning and a five gallon pail at night. Big givers. And that's what Jacob's doing. Jacob is just being wise. He's developing his stock according to the deal that he had with Laban. And in the middle of it all, we know from chapter 31 that Laban kept trying to knife him in the back and schnooker him out of the deal and change things. And no matter what Laban did, God blessed Jacob. That's good, isn't it? So Jacob's accumulation is stated in verse 43. In this way, the man grew exceedingly prosperous and came to own large flocks. And he had maidservants and men servants and camels and donkeys. His flock became so big that he had to hire people to take care of him. He became so productive at market time that he was able to turn in these speckled and spotted animals for their wool, for their meat, for whatever they were for. 
And he was able to invest in other divisions of agriculture, and he developed donkeys and camels, and those were camels especially were a great sign of wealth. And Jacob becomes very wealthy. Do you remember in chapter 28 that when he met with God, that God told him he would bless him? And God would bless everybody who blessed him. But Laban didn't figure it out, did he? Laban didn't bless the man of God. And I think it's interesting. We've already checked out the additional information in chapter 31. There's the story. Strange, isn't it, in our Bible? Well, I thought, there's some interesting concepts here. And for life application from this passage today, can I suggest what I call Jacob's formula for success? Jacob's formula for success. It is interesting to me that in the commentaries, the Bible students are divided over Jacob. Everybody agrees that Laban's a skunk. Everybody agrees that Laban is all about the money. Everybody agrees that Laban would, you know, like we say, pick the gold out of his mother's teeth, you know. Laban is all about himself and his money, and it's always manipulating Jacob. And Jacob even said that before his wives. But the Bible students are divided about Jacob. At this point in our story, I'm leaning towards Jacob being a righteous man because of his responses in chapter 31. I just think in humility, he acknowledges that all of this came from God. He acknowledges that I want to worship God and God is giving this to me. And I think that we see in Jacob's example here a formula for blessing, a formula for success that is worth noting. Number one, I do not want to minimize point number one, and it is hard work. In Jacob's formula for blessing, for God to bless him, guess what he did? He worked hard. He had worked hard for the first seven years. He worked hard for the second seven years. At the end of that time, when he says in his heart, I want to go home, Laban says, no, don't do that because you've really, I sought divination and you're the reason for my success. And Jacob says, no, duh. Everybody knows that. He works about six more years when this deal of the spotted, striped and speckled animals is going on. And then God says, go. Listen, that's 20 years. That's two decades. He doesn't even leave the field to go seek his wives when God speaks to him out in the field and says, Laban, time to go. He stays at work, calls for his wife's wives to come to him, partly because he probably didn't want Laban to see him. Laban was some miles away with his herds and stuff. But he's a hardworking man in every aspect. Proverbs chapter 14, verse 23 says... All hard work brings a profit, but mere talk leads only to poverty. Proverbs 14, 23. I encounter people from time to time who wonder why God's not blessing them. And they wonder why they have uh, such limited resource. And they wonder why things aren't working out. And step number one that I always poke around in is, are you working hard? If you're not working hard, don't expect God to bless you. You say, wait a minute, Jacob is a different entity. Jacob was part of the Abrahamic covenant. Jacob was promised that his life would be blessed. Yes, but did you notice that he did not let the promise of God undermine his work ethic? He knew God had promised to bless him, but he kept working hard. I really appreciate that about Jacob. Can I suggest that careful, diligent, wise management and hard work with an attitude of expectation of the blessing of God is not contrary to living by faith? 
Did you get what I said? Hard work, diligence, and oversight of my material goods and productivity with an attitude of expectation that God will bless this hard work is not contrary to living by faith. In fact, it is living out the Christian biblical ethic that we see throughout our Bible. The men of God who were wealthy, the instruction of God throughout Scripture is always to work hard and then expect God to take care of you. As much as you are able to work hard, work hard. Laziness is always forbidden in the life of the man of God or the woman of God. We're to be productive people. The promised blessing on Jacob's life did not undermine his work ethic. And I also want to point out that every time Jacob turned around and Laban was trying to schnooker him out of more of his productivity, that he did not let the abuses of Laban to undermine his work ethic. He did not let the abuses of Laban undermine his work ethic. Step number one in Jacob's formula for success, yes, he knew that he had a promise of blessing on his life, but he was working hard, and you see it in the passage when he told Uh, When he was speaking with Leah and Rachel in chapter 31, verse 6, he said, You know that I have worked for your father with all of my strength. He knew he had to do his part. God would do his part. Secondly, I think in Jacob's formula for success, we see spiritual integrity. I really do. I do not take the side that Jacob is a scoundrel in this passage. Some Bible commentaries set this up as two shysters trying to out-shyster each other. I don't see it that way. I think that Jacob made a shrewd deal with a shrewd man. Laban was a very shrewd man. You know, this kind of stuff happens even today. You get around guys that are dealing in heavy equipment or farm equipment and stuff, and they go to a lot of sales. And they're looking at all this equipment, and they're trying to sell their equipment to each other, and they're trying to... And they say, what you got there? Oh, I got this big green tractor, and it looks good. It's got good tires on it, man, really good tires. And they start talking about the tires, and the guy buys it. Forgot to ask him if the the motor didn't have a crack in it. And so, I didn't tell you it didn't have a crack. I told you it had good tires. You never asked if the motor ran. So you bought it. It's your deal. And they deal like this all the time. There's a borderline ethic and integrity there for a Christian man. But everything in this passage that I see Jacob doing was well within the parameters of his agreements with Laban. He had every right to do everything he did. He was being a shrewd businessman. And I think he acted with spiritual integrity. And I believe that because in chapter 31, verse 9, as we noted, he gives God all the credit for the blessing on his life. He did not take any credit for any kind of wheeling and dealing on his own. He gave all the glory to God. Can I take just a minute and can we turn... Let's turn to the New Testament, to Colossians chapter 3. And I want to further the application of this point to our lives on spiritual integrity and our work ethic by looking in Colossians chapter 3, please. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. And very quickly, I want to suggest three ways that Christians, three ways that Christians commonly lack spiritual integrity in their workplace. Three things that Christians are guilty of doing, just like everybody else out there, that shows a lack of spiritual integrity and work ethic with your boss. This is instruction to slaves. The Apostle Paul gives in Colossians chapter 3, verse 22 is where we'll begin. 
Let me read it quickly and let me just point these out. We're not going to camp here. I just wanted to encourage you to think about your work ethic and think about your spiritual integrity. Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything. Okay, the closest thing we have to that dynamic in our culture is the boss-employee relationship. All right? Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything and do it. Not only when their eye is on you and to win their favor, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for men. Since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. Anyone who does wrong will be repaid for his wrong. And there is no favoritism. The first thing I think sometimes Christians do to undermine their own spiritual integrity and work ethic at work is, number one, we, like people around us in the workplace, will show disrespect and even despise those who have authority over us. I think it is a lack of spiritual integrity for a Christian in the job place to despise or show disrespect for those who have authority over them. In our story, I see... Jacob keeping his mouth shut about Laban. He kept track. He knew ten times that Laban had, sh- had shystered him, cheated him. You don't see him putting Laban down to his daughters. You don't see him mouthing off. At least it's not recorded for us. And in Paul's instruction to the Colossian believers, he says to them in verse 22, Obey your earthly masters and do it not only when their eyes are upon you, but when their back is turned and you do it to win their, don't do it to win their favor, but do it with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. I think that Jacob knew that he, was, he had another agenda besides Laban's farm and the success of Laban's farm. What's your attitude towards the authorities around you at work? Secondly, I think that Christians are capable, like everyone else, of undermining their own spiritual integrity in the workplace when they cut corners and fail to produce at a high level. In the work market, we cut corners and we fail to produce at our highest level. When someone is paying you and you are working for them and you have an agreement with them, you need to be as productive as you know how to be for them. You don't slack, particularly because you are a Christian and that's what it means to have spiritual integrity and a Christian work ethic. And Jacob, obviously, for 20 years, had worked very hard to the point that when Laban went and saw a diviner and said, what do you think is the reason for my success? Boink, boink, Jacob. And Jacob knew it as well. There it was. Jacob was productive, even for a wicked boss. Thirdly, and and we see this back to Colossians chapter 23, verse 23, whatever you do, work at it with all of your heart as working for the Lord and not for men. When you wake up on Monday morning and go to work, even if you don't like your job, you go and you be as productive as you know how to be. Thirdly, we complain about and even loathe our job. And look what he says in verse 24. Since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward, it is the Lord Christ you are serving. Listen, when you wake up and go to work, you are really serving the Lord Christ. Why would you loathe what you're doing? It doesn't mean that you have to love necessarily what you're doing, but the fact that you have that job is of the Lord 
It's a provision from the Lord. You be the best that you can be, but get your resume out. You don't have to stay there in a miserable working condition, but you have to be the best you can be in that miserable working condition. Jacob, for 20 years, had worked for Laban, and there's no indication that he undermined him in any way that lacked integrity. Three thoughts that I had there that I wanted to encourage you in the area of spiritual integrity and work ethic. We sometimes disrespect and despise those with authority over us. We cut corners and fail to produce at a high level. We're slackers. We complain about and even loathe our job rather than serving the Lord Christ in that job with all of our heart. Well, let's go back to Genesis and let's finish up with what I'm calling Jacob's formula for success. Just a few more minutes and items here. First of all, Jacob's formula for success was hard work. It was spiritual integrity in the job place. Thirdly, and I get this from the the peeled bark. I really don't know what that was all about. But I like to think that Jacob was just trying some new ideas. And what I got out of that was that he, he showed a lot of ingenuity and creativity. I don't know what his motivation was exactly or whether he got that idea from the Lord, but I do take it that he worked hard peeling those branches and putting them out there and making this thing happen, and he took the deal and he worked it to its maximum. I see a lot of ingenuity in him. I see creativity. I see him managing his flocks well. That's biblical, isn't it? To know the condition of our flocks. We are not to waste resources and we are to take the resources that we have. We are to take the opportunities that we have and we are to show ingenuity and creativity and make those produce. It is wasteful. It is wasteful to have opportunity to produce and not produce. We live, listen, we live in a culture and we live in a political environment and we live in a society that is undermining the work ethic like nothing I've ever seen in my life. And to their disgrace, our Congress this week is paying people more money to not work. And that is wrong. It is stealing when they take other people's money and give it to somebody else without those people's permission. And they all ought to be kicked out of there. All right? It's wrong. And what does that teach our children? It teaches our children that they don't have to work. And we need to be implanting in our children a tremendous work ethic. And that as believers in the Lord Christ, He will bless us as we work. Now, granted, I know that there are people who are hard up for work. But I'll tell you something. It's not our government's place to give them money. It's, our, it's your family. It's our church. It's our people. As we know about it, we need to react to it. Jacob's formula for success had everything to do with his his work ethic, his spiritual integrity, his ingenuity and creativity, and ultimately it was his obedience. You notice that when God said, Jacob, go back, he did it. There is no indication that Jacob is anything but obedient to God in this. A lot of Christians do not have the blessing of God in their lives because when the word of God comes to them, I'm not talking about extra biblical revelation. Jacob was out in the field when God spoke to him and immediately he responded and he obeyed. And when we have the word of God and we are not living in obedience to the word of God and then we wonder why God isn't blessing our lives. Listen, you just need to wake up. You're missing the whole point. 
If you're a believer in the Lord Christ and you're holding the revealed word of God in your hand and you're disregarding it and then you wonder why your life isn't blessed, you might as well just go beat your head against a block wall because you're not going to receive the favor of God as a born-again Christian, as a believer in Christ without living in righteousness and obedience. Can we, will you please turn with me to Psalm 84 and let's close with this. Psalm 84. So Jacob's formula for success in the middle of a difficult working environment was to work hard, to maintain spiritual integrity, to show ingenuity and creativity, and number four, to be obedient to God and His will in His life. Psalm 84 is a great couple verses in verses 11 and 12. Will you look at that with me? For the Lord God is a sun and a shield, and the Lord bestows favor and honor, and no good thing does he withhold from those whose walk is blameless. O Lord Almighty, blessed is the man or the woman who trusts in you. Can I tell you something you're not going to do if you're a righteous man or woman and you walk in integrity on this side of heaven? You will never go to heaven and stand in front of the Lord and say, Lord, you didn't bless me. Lord, you didn't take care of me. Lord, you... It says in Psalm 84, 11 and 12, no good thing will you withhold. And Lord, you held all kinds of good things from me. It'll never happen to a righteous believer in Christ. You might never have the bass boat you want. You might not get a new fishing pole. And you might just have to get up and work for seven fifty an hour, whatever it is. But God is not going to withhold his favor upon you if you walk in obedience and righteousness, spiritual integrity. There it is. Well, Jacob cared about what God cared about in this passage, and God rewarded him for it. I'm not saying that this is a lever that you flip and God pours out money from heaven. I'm saying that 20 years of faithfulness, 20 years of work ethic, 20 years of spiritual integrity, 20 years of creative ingenuity, 20 years of trying to be obedient to God to the best of his ability and in his learning course, that God fulfilled his promise and blessing. And no good thing will he withhold from him whose walk is upright. Can I tell you, though, that you need to have Jesus Christ as your Savior? You need to know that your sin is forgiven. You need to be a child of God. That God takes care of his children. It's not automatic. So as we conclude today, do you know your sin is forgiven? Have you been to the cross for forgiveness? Have you cast your cares upon him? Do you know new life in Christ so that God can bless you as you walk in obedience?